Now you notice all the extra chairs in the cathedral, they weren't put here for me tonight. We have of course the Dalai Lama coming tomorrow, tomorrow afternoon. And uh, I have to speak some words of welcome to him. I'm the host, as it were. And I was thinking about what I might say. And the Dalai Lama is a fascinating figure in many ways. In some ways, he's like the Queen of England. I, and I guess most of you, can't remember life without him. He, like the Queen, has just been around so long. I mean, she's about 90. I think he's only about 80. But through thick and thin, and he's had his critics, as he would well know, but through thick and thin, what he stands for above all, what he stands as above all, is a witness to hope. Through tough times. And last week, you will remember those of you who were here, or those of you who were following live streaming, and good evening not only to those in the cathedral, but those who are following the live stream in the comfort of your home. Uh, nice to not see you, but nice to know you're out there somewhere. That uh, last week, I, last time, I said that the whole point of, of story in the Bible and why the Bible itself is very deliberately constructed as a story from beginning to end, it's put together very carefully and give it a, given a narrative shape, and that's not accidental or merely decorative. The whole point is to feed human hope in the midst of a world particularly a secular world which can often seem hopeless I was reading something today about suicide rates they're appalling really particularly in certain age groups now suicide's a most complex phenomenon you know that as well as I so there's no one line answer to the question why but it is surely one symptom of a kind of hopelessness. Drug taking is a different kind of symptom. See, the one thing the human being can't live without, and the Bible knows this better than anyone, is hope. We can survive on amazingly little, but we cannot survive without a genuine hope. And we can't concoct that for ourselves. We can concoct false hope, cosmetic hope. But it's not enough for the human heart and soul. What we are looking for is a genuine and enduring hope. And that's what the Bible's about. The Bible can seem so incredibly complex. But don't be fooled by the seeming complexity because at its heart, what I'm trying to say in these sessions is the Bible is almost terrifyingly simple, like God. Sometimes I think we like to take refuge in complexity. We're afraid of simplicity. But at its heart, that's what the Bible is always and only about, a hope that's born from hopelessness or that which seems to be hopeless. Now, last time I, I did Big Picture, the whole of the Bible constructed as a story. What I want to do now in continuing this reflection this evening is to reflect in greater detail upon story in the Bible. And we're actually going to take one of the most lurid stories in the whole Bible and have a quick romp through that just to illustrate the points that I'm about to make. Now, 
In the Bible, the question of story is not only a question of what happens, that's obviously important in any story, but it's also a question of how it happens. In other words, how the story is told. Here I touch upon the the, the important question of form and content. So we're not just interested in the content of the story. What I'm interested in tonight, as I begin, is the form of these biblical stories because the form, the how, how the stories are told is very, very particular and again it's very, very deliberate and to my eye it's also very fascinating. Why does the Bible tell the stories as it does? The answer to that question will take us to a deep theological place. So come with me. Biblical story, all of them, functions as what they call, now stick with me, don't get put off by the big word because I'm going to explain what it means. Biblical stories, all of them, function as a kind of theodicy is the word that's sometimes used. T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. Now, what's it mean? It means to to demonstrate the justice of God in a world where God, if God exists at all, seems unjust. In other words, to use the words of the poet John Milton at the start of his great epic poem, Paradise Lost, to justify the ways of God to men. So we do live in a world where God often seems unjust and the Bible rubs your nose in the seeming injustice of God. What did anyone do to get born in Sudan or a thousand other places on this earth where they're condemned to starvation and death and God knows what else? There's abundant evidence to support the claim either that there's no God at all, and again the Bible faces us into that, or that if there is a God, this God is malicious and unjust. And what the Bible says is, yes, I know that's the way the world often seems and God knows, and I mean that, that the history of ancient Israel very often seemed to be a desperate story, whereas if God was there at all, God was unfaithful, God was unjust, so it seemed. In the midst of all of that, the Bible picks its way through what seems to be the mess and says, there it is. If you have the right eye to see, you can see the plan and the purpose of God in its magnificent and surprising justice unfolding, but you need to acquire the right eye. In other words, the world and God's action in the world are intelligible for those who are properly intelligent. So the question then becomes, how do you acquire the eye that sees, as it were, in the darkness and sees the ways of God? And, and, and leads you to say, ah, I hadn't seen it like that. Now I see how God is faithful. God is just. God is loving. God is merciful. Didn't seem to be, but now I see. How do I acquire that particular kind of intelligence that is required if we are to see the ways, in other words, the plan and the purpose of God unfolding in a world where, where, there, where there just seems to be chaos, where God doesn't seem to be there at all or uh, God has been derailed. That's the question. 
Now let me just take you back briefly to the garden where it all began. In the Garden of Eden there are, according to the scripture, two trees. One is the tree of life and the tree of life is found in every other comparable story in the ancient world. So there's nothing particularly surprising about the tree of life. But the second uniquely biblical planting is the crucial one and the different one. And that is the tree of knowledge, in particular the knowledge of good and evil. Because you see, in the pagan world, the difference between the gods and us was not that the gods were morally superior, very often they were no better than we are. A mix of good and bad. The key difference between the gods and human beings was the gods simply lived forever. They were immortal and we're not. We die. So the the difference between the gods and human beings was at the point of life, mortality. Hence the tree of life. For the Bible, however, the essential difference between God and the human being is not at the point of mortality, it's at the point of knowledge. God knows everything always. That's one of the prime givens of biblical story. God always knows everything and that passes to the figure of Jesus in the New Testament. In the Gospels, it's a a given, a non-negotiable, Jesus knows everything. Alright, so in the Old Testament, God knows everything and the human being does not. That's the crucial difference. But it's not as if we human beings are locked in a world of irredeemable and hopeless ignorance. Our task is to move out of a world of ignorance into a world of knowledge, out of a world of blindness into a world of vision. In other words, to come closer to the point where God is, that point of full knowledge, without ever acquiring the omniscience, the full knowledge that God has. So the whole point of biblical storytelling is to lead us out of blindness into sight to see more as God sees into the murkiness of the world and of my heart to move out of a world of ignorance into a kind of knowledge that faith presumes. See, faith is never blind. Biblical faith is never blind. It's born of a kind of vision and gives birth to a kind of vision. It's born of a kind of knowledge and it gives birth to a kind of knowledge. So to use the words of William Blake, the English poet, of whom I'm a great fan because he is radically biblical, he may make a reappearance later on in my presentation, we have to allow the biblical storytellers to cleanse the doors of perception so that we can see what God is doing. And once you see what God is doing, you might say it's strange, but you say it's magnificent. And the words of praise come to your lips and you begin to speak your mother tongue. Remember the language of paradise? Doxology, glory be to the Father. But you can only say that and really mean it if you do come to vision, if you do come to knowledge. And how are you going to do that? Read the Bible. 
That's its point. That's why this text has power, power to open your eyes. Now, therefore, the question of who knows what is always important in the Bible. It's a bit like Watergate. What was the key question of Watergate? Who knows what, who knew what when? And that's also a question right at the heart of biblical storytelling. Very deliberately, what the biblical storytellers do is they build into the stories darkness. In other words, this is not escapist literature. The world that you meet in the biblical stories is the world that you know. In some ways it's brutally realistic because the world is often full of shadows. To use the Italian word, it is a world that's full of chiaroscuro, a word sometimes used in art. In other words, light and shade. That's our experience of God and why these great buildings of worship that seek to evoke the human experience of God are themselves buildings that have to play with light and shadow. Because it's not just unshadowed light, our experience of ourselves, of the world, of God. There is light, there are glimpses of light, but there's lots of shadow, half-light, darkness. And that's what you find in these biblical stories. It's built into the real world. And our real experience of the real world is actually built into these stories. It's very often a world of half-lights, deep shadows that lead to uncertainty. I can see, but I can only half see. A world which really is a challenge to perception. These stories, too, are deliberately made full of gaps and silences. There is an awful lot you're not told in the Bible. You'd love to know I mean, even think of the Gospels. Think of all that we're not told about Jesus. Wouldn't you like to know what colour his hair was? Wouldn't you like to know how tall Jesus was? Whether he had a beard or not? How did he sound? That's just one very obvious example. But in much, much more subtle ways... The Bible builds all kinds of gaps. It doesn't tell you stuff and deliberately doesn't tell you stuff. It wants to provoke questions in you, the reader. Why? What's going on? Why did he or she do or say that? So the gaps and the silences are everywhere to stir questions in you. But you see, the world as you know it, and God as you know God, is also full of gaps and silences. Sometimes the word of God, the way God communicates, is is silence. Does that sound strange? The word of God can be silence. I could give you examples from my own experience. We haven't got the time. But ponder your own experience of God and you'll see what I mean. God is full of gaps. The church is full of gaps and silences that I've got to make sense of. The rabbis, and again, we can learn so much from the rabbis. 
The rabbis have a magnificent way of speaking of scripture. They have many, but this is one I particularly like. They speak about the Bible as... Black fire on white fire. What do they mean? It's all fire. What's the black fire? The words. What colour? They're black. But what's the white fire? The gaps between the words, the margins around the words, which stand for the gaps and the silences of God and the world. And the Bible, according to the rabbis, you have to read the gaps. You've got to read between the words, fill in the gaps somehow. The, 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 the gap between the words is like a doorway into a world of meaning. So you don't have to just learn to read the words. That's, that's an important part of the task. You've also got to learn to read the gaps and silences. Because if you don't learn to read the gaps and silences of scripture how are you going to learn the gaps to read the gaps and silences of the world you won't so that this is this is really practicing to read these stories is like practicing to read the world read these stories well and you will read the text of the world and the text of god's action in the world and the text of your own life The better you read these stories, and no one gets it all, but the better you read these stories, the better you'll read the world and God and yourself in it. So gaps, silences, but they're there very, very deliberately. Just keep in mind, by the way, that we can can tend to patronise the ancients. Because they lived and wrote a long time ago, we can pat them on the head and say, well, they were just benighted ancients. They didn't know much back then. We know a heck of a lot more now. Some of the the storytelling in the Bible, in fact a good deal of it, is superb literary performance by artists, some of whom have rarely had a peer, rarely been equaled. So this is not primitive literature we're talking about. It might have been written a long time ago, but it is very subtle and sophisticated literature. Keeping in mind that I I think it's a a maxim that I've cited here before in an earlier session, something I read once and I thought that's glib when I first read it, but the more I've pondered it, the more interesting it becomes, that Freud, one of the seminal minds and voices of the contemporary world, Freud is only a commentator upon Shakespeare, and Shakespeare is only a commentator upon the Bible. So gaps and silences, darkness, black fire, white fire. The world of the biblical story is always ambiguous. You're not quite sure it could move that way or that way. So, so it, there's, an, there's an art of rendering the whole thing ambiguous. And again, that's because the world as we experience it, know it and strive to read it is itself ambiguous. The Bible and, and stories in the Bible revel in an art of implication. They love to imply much more than they actually say explicitly. They often, they, they often hint, come at something very obliquely, imply, rather than say something very blatantly or explicitly. The stories are often, as they say, fraught with background. You, you think of, 
Abraham taking his son Isaac to be sacrificed. That's an extraordinary piece of storytelling. So little is said. The whole thing is compressed and the Bible compresses everything. It revels in an art of compression. It uses very few words to say a great deal because it tends to imply, evoke. There's so much background. With just a few words, you can sense what's passing between the boy and his father. They don't say much, but that whole story is fraught with background. The words are simple, but the background is vast. Again, if I could cite William Blake, who I think feeds off this biblical idiom that I'm describing. You know his poem, famous poem, it's often in children's anthologies, Tiger. Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night, what immortal hand or eye deframe thy fearful symmetry, and so on. What's it about? What's about a tiger? But in fact, its resonances, its echoes are vast. It's not just about a tiger. Another tiny little poem of Blake's, again, is very biblical in its style. Listen to this. It's called The Sick Rose. O rose, thou art sick. The invisible worm that flies in the night, in the howling storm, has found out thy bed of crimson joy, and with its dark secret love doth thy life destroy. What's it about? A worm in a rose. What's about, again, the words are very simple. But you see what I mean by background? An echo effect. That's the way the Bible works too. Very compressed and fraught with background. Another crucial aspect, not only of biblical storytelling, but of the Bible as a whole, is what, is what I would call irony. What you see is not what you get. Now, irony depends upon a two-tiered view of reality. What do I mean by that? There's the world of what seems to be and the world of what is. The Australian sense of humour is very ironic. But the whole, there are very few laughs in the Bible. That too, by my reckoning. But the whole of the Bible is suffused with a kind of sly irony. So too, interestingly, is Jewish humour. It's often a dark kind of humour, I think born of the biblical idiom. Now, when I talk about irony, with this, the, the, the tension between the world that seems to be and the world that is, that's the great journey to which biblical story summons us. To journey out of a world of what seems to be, in other words, a world of illusion, into the world of what is, to truth. To truth. Now, that journey, and here again... I echo what I said last time about journey being the root metaphor of the whole of scripture. That journey out of the world of what seems to be into the world of what is, out of illusion to truth, is exactly the same journey as the journey home from the desert back to the garden of paradise, our true home. That's why we have to be dislocated. Because we, we, we can find ourselves inhabiting the world of illusion and thinking that it's truth. That goes on all the time. We can inhabit the desert and think that's all there is. Forget that, again, amnesia. 
forget that our true home is the garden and that's where we're journeying. So here again, biblical irony is power. This is not decoration or just style in some one-dimensional sense. These are words that have power. Again, words create worlds in the Bible. Language is power. And you see it there, the way the Bible uses irony. Another way that irony works is the way that the great characters of Scripture are presented. In the Bible, you never, ever find someone who is conventionally heroic. You do in the great pagan epics. If you read Homer, the Iliad, the Odyssey, if you read Virgil's Aeneid, these heroes glow with a kind of superhuman life. They are true heroes. But when you read the Bible, you don't find a single hero of that kind you might say to me wow what about King David but in fact we're going to meet King David and King David anyone who is a is a possible candidate for conventional heroism is deliberately subverted cut down to size by biblical irony so that the the people you meet in biblical stories are real flesh and blood human beings they're just like you and me Flaws and failings, wounds and weaknesses. No, none of this false heroism. Uh, the human being appears in absolute human scale. And, and Dave, anyone who is a particular can or a possible candidate for heroism gets particular treatment, as we shall see. In other words, this world, the world that is evoked or created by the biblical storytellers, is the real world. It is not idealised because that doesn't serve our real human purposes. To, to be taken into some escapist, idealist world, that doesn't help you, it doesn't help me. But we're taken into the real world, down, 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 into what W.B. Yeats, the Irish poet, calls the foul rag and bone shop of the, the heart, the foul rag and bone shop of the world, in fact. And the Bible rubs our nose in it. Uh, but does so for a very particular purpose because it's in the real world with all its mess and its half-lights that we have to discover what God is doing and how and see in fact that there is a magnificent plan and purpose evolving in ways we hadn't imagined. What I want to do now, just quickly, because we don't have time for, for this to be done more than, um, in more than uh, fairly cursory fashion, but I want to illustrate what I'm saying by turning to one of the, the most famous stories in the scripture, one that you know, I presume. It's the story of David and Bathsheba in two, the second book of Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 11. In fact, if you've got the Bible there, you might take it. I know some of you do have well done. But this is a story that you're familiar with, I think. Uh, King David. His eye falls upon the beautiful Bathsheba. And you know the rest of the story. She's married, that's the problem, to Uriah, the Hittite, who's out fighting a battle for David. So David 
Well, let's just have a look at the story. Stick with me and we'll go on a romp. Look at the way it starts. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go forth to battle, David sent Joab, his old general, and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. What's the question? Why? David was the great military leader. Why does he send the army? Being led now not by the king but by the general. What's happened? The time when kings go forth to battle. What does the king do? He stays in Jerusalem. What's the question? Why? Very odd. When you know David. It just so happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. He's got time for a siesta. They're out fighting a war. He's having a siesta. He goes for a walk on the roof of the king's house. Now, the king's house was on top of the hill. And from the terrace of the king's house, he could see the other houses below him. He saw from the roof a woman bathing. Ah, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman and he was told, "Isn't this, this is Bathsheba, you know who she is. Wife of Uriah the Hittite. Why are you asking? You know, who, this, Jerusalem wasn't a big city. So why did David stay in Jerusalem? Perhaps his eye had fallen on the beautiful woman and he knew the husband would be at war. Why is she bathing on the roof at that time? Perhaps she knows that that's when the king will walk on his roof after the siesta. Who's... We know what they're doing, but why? What's going on? You see the murkiness? The uncertainty about motivation? Who knows what? David sent messages and took her. It's violent language. Took her. She came to him and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself from her uncleanness. Menstruation. It's a funny little detail that, but why? Because now you know one thing for certain. If she conceives, who's the father? David. You see how the the storyteller controls your access to knowledge in very deliberate ways. She returned to her house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I am with child. I'm pregnant. What's the implied question? What are you going to do about it? David sent word to Joab, the general, send me Uriah the Hittite. What's the question again? Why? Why does he want to see Uriah the Hittite? When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, how how the people fared, how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, see how generous the king is? Go down to your house and wash your feet. What's he hoping? 
that Uriah will go down to his house, will sleep with his wife, QED, problem solved, baby born, might look a bit like the king, but it's Uriah's child. Plan A. Let's see how plan A goes. Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord and didn't go down to his house. Why didn't he go down to his house? Had he heard word? What does Uriah know? Had he somehow, you know, rumour travels? Had somehow rumour reached him at the battlefront? When he goes back, does he know something of what's going on? Why doesn't he go down to his house? David said to Uriah, haven't you come from a journey? Why didn't you go down to your house? Uriah said to David, now, there are two Uriahs. If you think he knows something, you see him in one light. If you think he doesn't know anything, he appears in another light. Look at what he says. The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Should I then go down to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I won't do this thing. Now, in fact, if he does know something of what's going on, what's he saying to the king? I'm not going to play your dirty little game. But if he doesn't know anything, it's noble, isn't it? I can't do this while my brother soldiers are in the battle. Which is the, which is the, the real Uriah? I'm don't, I don't know. What does Uriah know? I don't know what Uriah knows. Plan A goes down in a screaming heap. Now we get plan B. Then David said to Uriah, you stay here today also, and tomorrow I'll let you go back to the battlefield. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Now here we go. David invited him to dinner, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. What's plan B? Get him drunk, and all that high-flown principle will simply evaporate. He'll go down to his house, and you know what? Plan A will finally be, plan B will succeed where plan A has failed. How does it go? And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Plan B fails too. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Set Uriah in the forefront. What's plan C, the final solution? Make sure he gets killed in battle. Put him in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Job was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men and the men of the city came out and fought with Job and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite was killed as well. QED. He's dead. But you see, Joab knows that he can't do what the king has said. What's he supposed to do? Say, charge the wall, you men, and when I blow the trumpet, all of you are to fall back except you, Uriah. He can't do it. What does Joab have to do 
to do what the king asks, kill Uriah, he has to kill others. Collateral damage. See what I mean about the hero David? How tawdry and worse could you get? When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, don't what he's called? Uriah, her husband, was dead. She made lamentation for her husband. See how the Bible rubs your nose in the bond of marriage there? And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. As the story unfolds, that child will die. David and Bathsheba, now husband and wife, will have another child. The name of the boy will be Shlomo. We know him as Solomon. And Solomon will be the youngest of David's children, but it's he who will succeed his older brothers up to his knees in their blood as the Davidic king through whom the Abrahamic blessing is mediated to the chosen people. Now you see what's happening? The plan of God working through the Davidic dynasty, David and his sons, to whom God had made a promise of an eternal dynasty, to mediate the blessing of the fullness of life to the people. It is out of this adulterous, murderous world that the one chosen by God is born. So the plan of God unfolds in the midst of all that is most tawdry and desperate in human life. So, so you see how, how, how the storytelling works. It takes you into that real world of half-lights, uncertainties, gaps, silences, who knows what, and, and worse, adultery, murder, duplicity, uh, callous pragmatism on the part of Joab, collateral damage is the way life is. But through it all, the plan of God unfolds as the baby Shlomo Solomon is eventually born. I hope it's now clear to you what I said at the start, that the way these stories are told is not incidental and is not merely decorative or cosmetic. That the how of the storytelling is a crucial part of what is being communicated. And you couldn't possibly just give a summary of the plot of that story of David and Uriah and Bathsheba and do justice to what the Bible presents. And I could give you example after example of what I've just done very quickly here. And I suggest that when you get a moment and you've got a Bible in front of you, you go back in the light of what I've said and just have a, a read, a careful read. Don't skim read it. The Bible doesn't repay skim reading. Go back and have a read of that story. Second book of Samuel, chapter 11. You can read on beyond it if you like because it becomes even more fascinating in some ways as the story unfolds. At that point, and with a view to preparing the, the, the way, as it were, for what I intend to do in the next session, 
I want to turn, in one sense, turn from the world of biblical story, see, story being one of the two great pillars upon which Scripture is built in both Old and New Testament. I want to turn now to the second of the two great pillars upon which the Bible is built, and that is law, Torah. Now, I've spoken in my reflections upon biblical story, I've spoken about God's plan, and the Bible insists that God does have a plan uh, that is unfolding in human history, that it will come to its, its completion beyond the end of history. That's what we find in the New Testament. But, but it is unfolding already and can be perceived by those who are properly perceptive. So the question then is, what is God's plan? Again, we've touched upon this in earlier sessions, but it is crucial. God's plan is to lead the human being back to the garden, back home. Another way in which the Bible says that is that God wants to leave slaves out of Egypt into the promised land. It's the same thing for scripture. Another way of saying it is God wants to transform the world. The world as it is is seriously out of joint. It's not the world as God wants the world to be. And the God of the Bible who hears his people's cry is not a God who just looks, shrugs the shoulders and turns away. This is a God who gets, has mud on the boots. A God who sheds blood and tears. So in other words, according to scripture, God decides to do something about the mess of the world, to transform it. Now, there are many people who want to transform the world. Uh, Marxism, for instance, says, well, let's try violent revolution. I mean, it's never worked. It only makes the world worse, but there are still people strangely attracted to it. Let's try violence as a way of transforming the world. That's what all the ideologies in their different ways do. As I say, it never works, but they try. You might say, well, look, why doesn't... We're talking about God now. Why doesn't God just go sim bim boom, there's the world, we're back to the garden. It's not the way God works, because if God were to do that, it would amount to an abolition of human freedom, the greatest gift he's given us. And that's not what God does. What we've seen from the very first page of scripture is God wants to work with the human being. God wants to be our partner. And God wants us to be his partners. God wants to work with us, his co-creators, to transform the world. So how does he go about it? From the barren womb of Sarah, he brings to birth a people. From the house of bondage in Egypt, he brings a ragtag mob of slaves and makes them a people. It's the same action. He creates a people. He doesn't bind a people. He actually creates a people. Why? To be the counter-society of God for the sake of the world's transformation. 
Since the Second Vatican Council, we have become quite familiar in the Catholic Church with the expression, the people of God. It's a rich biblical term that I'm drawing upon now. However, if you look at the Hebrew expression that we translate as the people of God, it's, it's, it's the word we translate as people is the, the word am. It's got a guttural and then just am in transliteration. In some ways it's better translated as society. So I prefer to say society of God. Now what's the difference between people and society? People of God and society of God. What's the difference? The difference is society gives more a sense of structure. And that's exactly the way it is in the Bible. I'm not sure if any of you have ever tried to read the whole of the Old Testament. You might have. I don't recommend it. I mean, read the the Old Testament, but don't just sit down and read it from cover to cover, as it were. If you've tried it, you probably start off with with considerable momentum through the great stories of the book of Genesis and uh, in the early part of Exodus. Again, it's a great read, but you bog down once you get to the great law codes. The three great law codes that you find in the first five books of the, uh, the Bible are the book of the covenant in the book of Exodus, the holiness code, which is seriously hard work in the book of Leviticus, and then the Deuteronomic code in the uh, book of Deuteronomy. And that they are ordered chronologically. The oldest of them is the book of the covenant, then comes the holiness code, and then comes the Deuteronomic code. And what you find in those three great law codes, which seem so unreadable, but what you find are the evolving structures of the counter-society of God. They're the most fascinating texts, if you know what you're reading. They're not just these great gobs of totally irrelevant kind of legalism, but, but they are the evolving structures as, as ancient Israel comes to see more of what God wants of them as this counter-society for the sake of the world's transformation, that, that growing perception finds expression in these three great law codes. Now, what do I mean when I say a counter-society? In the world as we know it, let's call it the secular world. Again, I don't want to bag the secular world, but let's call it the secular world. Very often what prevails is what I would call the logic of Pharaoh. What is the logic of Pharaoh? Once a slave, always a slave. Abandon hope, all you who enter here. It's a hopeless world, quite literally. Once a slave, always a slave. Just get used to it. That's what you are. And that's all you'll ever be. Now, what God does is gather together a community of slaves set free to be counter to that logic. In other words, a community in its structures, its flesh and blood, not in some vague new world phantasmagoric newosphere, but in the real human world. A structured community 
living the life of slaves set free, counter to the logic of Pharaoh, embodying the logic of God and therefore set by God in the world as a sign of hope in the midst of what seems hopeless. That's what Israel is and that's what the church becomes. And if we're not counter, we're part of the problem and not part of the solution. We have to be a counter society just as Israel was called to be a counter society. You see, law. In the West, we think of law as a necessary evil to restrain wayward human passion and to protect fragile human rights. It's a necessary evil. That's not the way the Bible or now Judaism see it. The law is God's greatest gift to Israel and they have a feast each year called the rejoicing of the Torah. And you might say, well, how could you rejoice in the gift of law? Let me explain. You find this in the Psalms, or your law is my delight. You think, how could that be true? Horribly legalistic. No, 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 think again. The question is this. Our forefathers and foremothers, our ancestors in the faith, they came forth from Egypt. They were liberated by the power of God and it was a magnificent thing. That was great for them in their time. But that was a long time ago. What about us now? How are we to experience Exodus? Because you see, Egypt is everywhere. We in our own way are also caught in Egypt. We too crave freedom because we're human beings. So how are we going to come forth from our Egypt is the question. And the brilliantly original answer to which the Bible comes is the law. Obey this law and you will come forth from every Egypt. The law is the royal road that leads you out of Egypt into the promised land, out of the desert into the garden. In other words, set at the very heart of the Bible and of biblical religion is the paradox, the mystery of a liberating obedience. You will never be truly free unless you tie yourself down. We still see it in our religious, some of whom we have, I think, here tonight. Why do religious take a vow of obedience? Not because they're benighted legalists or they hate freedom. They've understood the very heart of what the scripture gets at. You want to be free? Of course you do. Every human being does. But the path that leads to a genuine freedom as distinct from a false freedom that ends up another kind of slavery, the path into a true freedom is a strange path. A path we hadn't imagined. Tie yourself down. Obey this law that God gives. God doesn't give the law because God is a horrible legalist. God, who's God worried about? Us. God wants us to be free. That's why God created us. So God gives the law and, and, and it lovingly says, obey the Lord. See, love always contains an obedience, freely given and joyfully given. 
You can see it in marriage, but in many other relationships too. Love always contains an obedience, freely and joyfully given. At times, Christians, and here I conclude, Christians are tempted to oppose law and grace. That the Old Testament's all about law. The God of the Old Testament's all about law. And the God of the New Testament, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is all about grace, as if law and grace were somehow opposed one to the other. Think again, Christians. The law is gift, therefore the law is grace. Law and grace are not opposed. You've got to work out how they relate. St Paul grapples with this because he was a Jew to the day he died. And we'll meet St Paul in a later session. The law is grace. And the Gospel of today's Mass, Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law of the prophets. I came to fulfil them. Now what does it mean? to fulfil the law. Liberation. That's the purpose of the law. And to fulfil the law is liberation. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Freedom. So Paul will say in Galatians that the law was a paedagogos. It was a preparation a preparation for the fullness of grace that was to come in Jesus Christ. But the two are not opposed. It is all gift. It's all grace. And liberating obedience applies no less in the New Testament than it does in what we call the Old Testament, remembering that old does not mean superseded, or clapped out. Old simply means former. And without the Old Testament, the New Testament means what is incomprehensible. In many ways, the New Testament really is a how to read the old. So, on that suggestive note, I shall return to the silence from which we came and we shall pursue our reflection upon biblical law next time, but I then want to talk about the prophets who are a crucial voice precisely within this context. Thank you.